Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Assembly Coworking Space. Assembly has been home to some of Calgary's brightest tech startups and small businesses for almost a decade. If you're looking for a co-working space, check out assemblycs.com. Hey loyal listeners, I'll be hosting this episode myself. I've been involved in software development for more than 25 years. I've started companies, led companies, and worked for companies, doing many different things. I'm honored to be considered a leader in Alberta's innovation ecosystem, and I give back as much and as often as I can. When I'm not working or podcasting, you'll find me pursuing my passions of photography, crypto investing, and woodworking, along with the occasional round of golf. In this episode, Ross Lockwood and I discuss living on Mars and how to automate your home. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome to the show. So my special guest today is Ross Lockwood. Now, I met Ross through some really interesting technology stuff that we were discussing with regards to blockchain and such. But he's such a fascinating person. I thought it would be awesome to have him on the show. So, Ross, thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here on the show with you today. Cool. Ross, can we talk a little bit about your career trajectory? Because, you know, you're, you're a pretty smart fella and you've uh, done quite a bit in your career already. I'd love to, to, for you to share that with the, with the audience. So tell us kind of where you came from and how you got to where you are. Sure. Let's start with where I am right now. I'm currently working for KPMG Toronto out of Edmonton. I was originally hired in the Edmonton office, but my official title there is management consultant, and my unofficial title is data scientist. So that's going to set the context for how we get to KPMG. But my early career is quite a bit different. So I've always been the math and science nerd and, you know, really focused my kind of interests in the realm of science. So not a lot of business background and experience when I was young. And going into university, I thought, hey, I'm going to become some kind of a doctor, optometrist or family doctor. And I figured I'll take a general science approach. And I got to university. I took my first physics course and I said, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore. At least I'm not going to be a medical doctor. And I went on the full steam physics path starting right after my first year undergraduate. So it really hooked me early on. Now, you have a a PhD in condensed matter physics. Is that correct? That's right. So as part of my undergraduate, I started volunteering for a lab that did some photoluminescence work, which is shooting lasers at various materials and measuring how the light is absorbed or, or re-emitted. And one of, the, one of the things that we were studying were these kind of newly synthesized silicon quantum dots back in 2006, 2007. And the idea behind the material is that you shoot kind of a short wavelength light pulse in the blue, and one of these silicon quantum dots will absorb it and re-emit it in orange or red. So they do down conversions primarily. But as an undergraduate, I was volunteering in this lab, shooting lasers at this strange material, and I noticed uh, a pretty interesting effect where the brightness increased rather than decreased. And we noticed that it also happened more, rather the effect was stronger 
when there was humidity in the atmosphere. And, and it was very evident when my supervisor leaned over the sample that we were experimenting on and breathed warm breath over it. And it immediately got like 10 times brighter. So that kind of, that was the the catch for me that got me going into the PhD track in that very same lab. So I'm not, uh, I'm a bit unusual when it comes to doing a PhD because it came out of undergraduate work and, and kind of developed straight from there. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I think you were telling me uh, when we were talking offline, it's sort of the, this quantum dot stuff is sort of been developed into the QLED television sets and stuff today, right? That's right. So Samsung's developed a process to make very efficient quantum dots out of various materials. And they're putting them into kind of intermediate stages in the backlight for their television so that they can get redder reds and yellower yellows. But it's the exact same principle as what I was studying at the time. My PhD went into detail about how that brightening process was happening. And what it was was a on the surface of the quantum dot, we could manipulate the chemistry directly. So swapping out electron defects for hydrogen atoms turns a quantum dot on or makes it brighter, right? And presumably that kind of knowledge is, is necessary in the processes that Samsung is using. But I do like to think that somewhere someone read my PhD and, and got some utility out of it. So I look at those QLED TVs and I go, some part of my research might be in there. Oh, that's interesting. That's actually fascinating. Now, there was another really cool thing that you did, and I, I don't know if I got this correct, but you were an, an experimental astronaut in the high seas program. Is that Do I got that right? I wouldn't quite say I'm an experimental astronaut. I guess, yeah, that is an apt description. So it was during my PhD. I mean, let's go into a little more detail about how I got into this high seas program. So while I'm doing my PhD, one of the things that I'm doing is a teaching assistant program. And normally as a PhD student, you'd be working labs. So underground in dark and shooting lasers at things with undergraduate students. But because I had volunteered for the university's observatory for so long, when I became a graduate student, they needed a teaching assistant to step in that could do nighttime stuff. So opening up the telescopes to the public or letting undergraduates do their projects and so on. And that's kind of, I mean, I've always been interested in space and I just happen to be better at condensed matter physics than astrophysics, but the, the, the interest was broad. So I was aware of opportunities like, you know, visiting observatories and it was kind of in the same vein where we got a notification for this high seas program. And what high seas stands for is the Hawaii space exploration analog and simulation. So the word analog there really means that, okay, we're going to pretend to be on Mars using the, the closest available technologies to what we'd expect to be using out there. And so this high seas simulation is actually like a Mars habitat that's been built out on the mountainside of the Mauna Loa volcano in Hawaii. And they have been running studies since roughly 2012 in conjunction with the University of Hawaii and NASA, who provides funding, to do Mars ground simulations and figure out not only kind of what kind of food that we need for long duration spaceflight and ground simulations in Mars, but the psychological makeup of the crew is one of the primary driving factors in the research program. You can imagine just selecting six random people off the street and putting them in a small house for four months and what the outcome might be. So it is really crucial for, for NASA to get 
good results in these research areas. So it's kind of like the opposite of Big Brother. They're trying to find people that actually would live together well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I do like the principal researcher repeated something to many different people who asked similar questions. They would ask, what do you do in order to stir the pot, you know, to, to actually get some reaction out of things? Because presumably this would be a very boring study if you got everything right. And she said, we don't do anything to disrupt the simulation at all. We don't interfere with them. You know, we send regular messages, but we're never communicating behind anyone's back. And she said, conflict comes up naturally. There's no avoiding it. Like there's really no situation and is absolutely true. Like you can unintentionally elbow somebody walking past them and that becomes a snowball that just grows into an avalanche. Um, so that was a really interesting for me to experience, not only you know in the simulated Mars aspect, but with my background as a physicist, we're not well known for developing deep personalities. <laughs> I guess, and it's a bit of a general generalization, of course, but I think people who end up doing PhDs and stuff like that, they have a little bit of an ego going, right? So the other people in the room are also really, really intelligent. And so there's probably a little bit of a challenge going back and forth in there that's not really maybe intentionally. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. Going into this experience, I was the egotistical physicist. I was like, okay, I'm going to be the systems and communications engineer. I'm going to have everything under control. And by the end of the simulation, you know, just knowing how well controlled everything was and everything that had gone on during that simulation, I... I couldn't in good conscience carry that ego forward from that moment. It was like I, my personality was laid bare over those four months. <laughs> I, I had a lot of time to think. So just going back, like I did apply for this while I was a PhD student and I, I managed to arrange for a four month sabbatical so that I could pause my research and then go and live in this dome for four months. So Come March 2014, I was ready to go and we basically flew out to Hawaii. We got to meet some fascinating people who would be doing the background operations. And we got a little bit of training by touring through some of the volcanoes national parks and learning about geology and what astronauts might be interested in when they get to Mars. And then we rode our you know, Ford F-350 Econoline rocket up the mountain and we were, you know, we landed on Mars during a rainstorm and basically started in the worst possible scenario with zero battery power, zero solar energy, zero communications. Like they basically just dropped us off on the mountain and then said, well, hopefully this all starts working tomorrow. Good luck. <laughs> and that was the beginning of our, our surface mission on Mars. So how long, was, how long were you, I guess, secluded away by yourselves? It was... It was 119.7 days where we were, you know, totally alone. And, uh, you know, the, the bookends on each of that, they're very interesting. Obviously, we got dropped off at the end with, with the rain or dropped off at the beginning with the rainstorm. But then at the very end, we were greeted by a full table of food and a crowd of people and media attention. So, you know, it was quite the experience. It certainly was. Oh, this is so fascinating. I've got so many questions, but you know, like what I'm thinking, okay, if, if this was me at the beginning, I would probably be like super, super excited and like really interested and happy to meet everybody and let's get started. Let's figure out, let's do our thing or whatever. And then there'd probably be like a halfway point where it was maybe 
a little bit monotonous and I was kind of like thinking, well, it'll be over soon. And then by the end, I'm probably thinking, oh God, let this be done. Was it like that for you? Yeah, those flavors certainly came up during the mission. And I have to say, you know, four months for me felt like a long time, but the high seas program has done eight month and 12 month simulations after hours. So if you really want to hear some I don't know if they're good stories, but if you want to hear some stories about that, there are some participants who've gone on longer missions than I have. But you described it perfectly. Like that midpoint, you're like, all right, it's all downhill from here. But when you've been coasting for two months and there's no uphills and no downhills, you know, another two months can seem like a long time, especially that last month where it was like, you know, I remember we only allocated one minute of shower water per day. So that's how we managed our water limitations with respect to cleanliness. And so for me, the strategy became, I'm going to take a two minute shower every second day and, you know, double the luxury basically, because one minute's not even enough to really get rinsed and wet. And then you've got to soap up much, much less and then get rinsed off. So I went for the two day, uh, two minute shower strategy. But I just remember in my head, every time I had a shower, it would be, okay, this is my 40th last shower and this is my 39th last shower as the days go from 80 to 78 and, and so on that was the only way that i could really distinguish time was thinking okay when i was in the shower that day i was thinking okay there's 20 more showers left or there's 10 more showers left and towards the end you know where there's eight showers and then there's six showers and so on you know you're excitement starts to build and it's like my life is going to be different after this my life is going to change so much but ultimately, I think that everybody has had a slice of that experience with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're roughly two years into it at the time of the recording now, and people have really been isolated in their own, you know, Mars-style habitats in their own homes for quite a bit longer now, right? And we still do have the luxury of being able to go outside without a spacesuit and and go shopping. But at the end of the day, if you're spending... 95% of your time inside your house, you know, I think that the feelings for me, at least they're very similar to what it was like being out on the, on the mountain in Hawaii, right? Physically isolated. Maybe we're in one giant simulation right now. <laughs> let's, let's save that for another episode because two questions. So first of all, when you guys went outside, did you have to wear spacesuits to simulate the fact that you were actually on Mars? And then secondly, what comprised your day? Were you doing all kinds of experiments and stuff or like, how was that working out? Let's answer the second question first. So when we were asked to apply to go to high seas, we basically said, we're going to pro provide you with four months access to this habitat. Do you have something that you could bring along with you that you'd like to do? And so as part of our applications, we all proposed experiments. So my particular experiment, I partnered with a doctor in Toronto who had designed 3D printed surgical instruments. And we had a little surgery box where we could have you know tissue samples and we learned how to do suturing i basically taught the crew how to suture up some wounds and stuff and then i had them exercise with 3d printed tools versus their stainless steel counterparts so that didn't take a lot of the day i mean there are a lot of chores to manage when you're you know supporting a crew of six people kind of out in as remote as you can be, as, as remote as you can pretend to be at least, and still be able to have access to security and emergency services. 
some of the projects that were brought in were things like geology analysis. So we had Casey Stemmen, our commander, who, you know, designed and implemented some geology plans and some mapping plans. And so we had some duties that involved going out and doing activities on the surface. So for all intent and purpose, we did the best job we could to pretend we were on Mars. And we had two spacesuits available that were analog spacesuits developed by the university. I think it was Maryland, but I may be wrong. And they were called the MXC suits. So if you find pictures online or if you go to my website and you, you see some of the pictures of us outside, the white suits that look like full-on NASA branded suits are the MXCs. And those suits were really interesting because they're not just designed to you know, replicate the life support systems, but also replicate the feeling of being in a spacesuit. So they were non-pressurized, but they had pressure uh, garments inside so that we got the feeling of, of having, you know, the vacuum of space being counteracted by the, the actual suit. We had a water garment that we could wear for cooling and the backpack had, you know, like a cooling loop with ice bath and pumps and stuff. But those suits weren't really designed for egress and for safety. And we did have an incident where we short-circuited one of the batteries and it had a potential to cause a fire. We had to get someone out of the suit very quick. So we were aware of that right going right in. They're like, don't trust these suits to be you know, fireproof and make sure that you guys can get out of them. So besides those, we also had your standard typical orange hazmat suit with the full-on bio mask in the front, the bio shield in the front. And so even if we went out with the two MXC spacesuits, there'd always be a third person in the in the hazmat suit that, you know, the hazmat suit, they could just unzip them and be out immediately and then assist with other other people. So for for the safety conscious, we had a, a second style of suit. But for that matter, no one ever went out without one of the two suits on, right? Then we presume them to be dead. Right, right. So it was as realistic as you could possibly make it, right? Like, oh my gosh, the air is toxic. We can't go outside. Okay, that's exciting. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have been like. And the other thing that you had mentioned when we talked is when you came back, you sort of, I guess, replicated some of the like the the technology and you even have like a little mini rover that has the same software on it and stuff. Tell us a little bit about that because I can see it on the wall behind you. This has been my savior over the last two years is developing my own home habitat operating system. So I'll just give you some context. The The dome itself, the high seas habitat, had an HVAC system. It's in Hawaii, so it had a relatively small propane heater. Uh, I think it was propane, but I don't remember there being pro- propane tanks, so it was probably an electric heater. So let's say it was an electric heater and then it just had kind of the HVAC ventilation. So we're only worried about extreme low temperatures where we were on the mountain and never extreme high temperatures. So that was an automated system that was based on some um, DIN rail mounted Ethernet switches that were available back at the time. So I don't know exactly what they were, but you can think of them as more robust Raspberry Pis that had GPIO inputs and outputs for switches. So all that was controlled through kind of a web interface that had the habitat and little icons for the different fans. So if we wanted manual control, we could go into the interface and turn them on and off. It also did power management. So obviously being out in the middle of nowhere in Hawaii, we had to manage our entire day's power through our solar system and our battery banks. Um, and that was available 
as well. We could see, you know, what the capacity of the batteries were through that interface. So I've taken on this project and I, I found uh, a number of really easy to use open source tools to set it up. But essentially at the very base end of my home habitat, I'm running software called Home Assistant. And that is an operating system or it could be run as a program, but generally speaking, you, you dedicate a computer to it and you install the operating system on it. And it starts to integrate any of the smart devices that you're using. So if you have, you know, Google devices at home, Home Assistant provides an integration where you can connect those devices into your Home Assistant. And just like the Habitat, Home Assistant is a web interface. So on any of the computers that you have at home or if you want to use an app on your phone, you open the web or you open the app and then it connects to that computer and it'll show you all the details about those devices. The last time they were opened or closed, what their current state is. And so I've built out, you know, a bunch of really interesting features in my house. I never have to touch a light switch, which is fun. I have a Google Coral tensor processing unit, which does object recognition through my video cameras. I'm in a rental right now, so I'm limited to what I can do. And one of the things that the house is missing is a doorbell. So I have an automation set up through Home Assistant that watches my front camera. And when a human object is detected above a certain threshold right in front of my porch, it'll send a notification to all of my phones. And it's just a doorbell sound. So you don't have to ring a doorbell when you walk up to my house. My house automatically rings the doorbell for you. <laughs> that's actually really, really interesting. It reminds me of that video that somebody did where you know the, they show this guy and he's obviously in a really, really fancy house and everything's fully automated. And he gets up in the morning and he's like talking to his house, telling it to turn on the lights and all this other stuff. And then he leaves the house and goes to the dentist. Then it, when he gets home, it's pouring, pouring rain. And his mouth is all frozen and he's trying to tell the house to open the door and it's saying it doesn't understand who he is. <laughs> it was hilarious. But no, this that's so fascinating. I mean, yeah, obviously you're a nerd god <laughs> For t to all of us geeky people who love to play with technology. You're obviously our king, but I'd love to uh, hear about the rover too, because you've got a, a little mini rover there. And I remember you saying it had like similar technology that you had in the habitat. Can you address that? So the rover that I have is a Christmas gift. It's available on Amazon. I'm pretty sure, I can't remember the brand name, but it's one of the Raspberry Pi 4 kits that you can find that's got the word four-wheel drive as a keyword or four WD. So if, if anyone listening wants to look that up, you'll be able to find these on Amazon. It's a very basic platform, at least for me. But the idea behind this is that, you know, to complete my Mars role play, not only do I have to have a habitat, but I also have to have things like rovers that can go and gather resources for me. It is a work in progress, but what my plan is here is, is again, to find an open source project, and I found one. This one's called the Robotic Operating System. And what it does is it actually provides a host and client platform that allow you to basically run simulations of your rover in the host platform and then allow the client to test those out in the real world. Kind of each one of these interests is, is me trying to figure out kind of the minimum viable product for deploying this at home. I'm, I mean, I would love to have a more advanced robot that had a grasping arm and could drill into rocks and stuff, but my interest in this stuff is really just as far as 
I can get utility out of it. So for this particular robot, what I'd eventually like to do is have it available in my home assistant as a video feed that has, you know, the controls on it that lets you know, okay, I want to drive forward or left or right. And that would give me a mobile platform when I'm out of the house to kind of do a quick survey and see, okay, did the cats, you know, spill their water bowl or something like that. So I don't know, that one's kind of been a back burner project for some time, but I'm running out of things to add to the house lately. And, and so it might come up next. My most recent addition, so my dad installed solar panels at his house in British Columbia. And I don't have that luxury. Again, I'm in a, in a rental house, but I asked like, can I get your API key so that I can pull data off of your solar panels? And so even though I don't have solar panels here at home, I have them integrated into Home Assistant so that I can see, you know, if I had the same array that my dad had, here's how much power I'd be generating. And here's how much I'm offsetting my own, you know, power consumption. Oh, that's fascinating. That's totally fascinating. I mean, I'm going to have to have you back on the show because there's just so many things that we could probably talk about. But before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to sort of elaborate on a bit before we end this? I don't have anything specifically that I, I want to elaborate on, but I just want to maybe tie it back into how I got into KPMG because yeah, that's an interesting story. I mean, ultimately, I don't know that I've had the career direction that, that people claim they have, you know, the certainty of knowing I'm going to become a doctor or I'm going to become a physicist because to me, it's always felt like you know, when I, when I develop some expertise in something that I'm always hungry to move on to the next thing. And so it's happened several times, like I said, going into the undergraduate thinking I'm going to become a medical doctor and right away switching gears into physics. And then at the end of my physics career, I was like, you know what, I'm, I've kind of reached the end of what I consider physics to be. I could go into research and I could narrow my focus even further, but it never felt right to me to confine myself to that box. So it took me a long time to actually find a job at KPMG. I was working for the university doing online courseware, and we published the Black Holes 101 course available through Coursera. And I started doing part-time consulting work, and even at the in the darkest time of my unemployment there, I went and I worked for Ice Castles just as a host and got to spend some time outside freezing my, my toes off. You know, I didn't know what to expect applying for KPMG. They had a computer engineering opening, and I was like, I, I know how to program. I've done some PhD-level uh, analysis. They didn't know what to expect either, really, for what they were asking. I, I think that they got more than they bargained for when I ended up on the team because we've been working on everything from machine learning in oil and gas pipelines to strategic uh, development of remote health deployment with the Canadian Space Agency. There's a couple of things on the back burner there. And what's really interesting is I'm using a lot of this Mars storytelling and, and my, my home habitat to actually generate business through KPMG. So, you know, I can show my clients like, hey, here's how I set up my sensors at home. You know, you're, you're not going to use a, a home product. You're obviously going to go for an enterprise solution, but here are the features that you want. Here are the workflows you want to be able to build and the alerts that you want to build into your, your workflow. And, you know, as my time continues at KPMG, I'm getting access to more and more powerful tools. And, you know, today I'm working on Azure pipelines using Terraform as our, you know, configuration. So I've gone from, you know, 
data analysis to machine learning to database administration to uh, mainframe migration. And now we're all about getting applications into the cloud that can help our clients and help us internally as well. So, you know, I feel like things are going exponential. Well, that's a really cool way uh, to look at it. And your career path, I I find really, really fascinating because you kind of followed your heart. You kind of followed your things that were fascinating to you. And it just kind of led you into these cool things, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of people out there that say, you know, just say yes to things, <laughs> you know, instead of instead of always saying no and trying to focus so hard on one thing, just kind of say yes to things and see where you lead. And that seems like it's been a really fun journey for you so far. Yeah. I mean, I can't really give general advice for anybody starting out in this other than to say, I haven't really focused on what I'm interested in as much as what I'm good at. And then, you know, if if you're good at something, and you're satisfied that you're good at it. For me, it's okay, set it aside and go and work on something else. For a lot of people, it's get better and better at that one thing. And I think that there is some benefit to only getting to 80% in a particular skill or hobby, because if you add on, if you bolt on a different hobby, right? I use the photography and scuba diving example all the time, but you can get to 80% in photography and you know, you're a reasonable photographer, you could go pro if you really wanted to. You get 80% in scuba diving and you've got access to a whole bunch of new places, but you combine 80% photography with 80% scuba and all of a sudden you're 160%, right? I mean, I'm exaggerating there, but you've got a skill that 99% of photographers don't when you can scuba dive. And when you're scuba diving and you got photography, you got a skill that 99% of scuba divers don't have. So those are like those intersectional areas are where I'm really looking to make significant gains, right? Role-playing on Mars is one big area where I get lots of cross-action with new technology, with exciting ideas, with hype cycles in the space industry. Like, there's really nothing that I don't think I, there's nothing I can't do with this setup. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Wow. Okay, cool. Thanks so much for your time, Ross. It was absolutely intriguing and interesting for me. I'm sure all of the listeners are very much uh, excited about uh, hearing this story. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to throw out my my social media. I'm not very active, but at Spin Crisis is my Twitter handle. And spincrisis.com has some resources for high seas and some of the other adventures I've been doing. I do plan on reinvesting in that in that blog in the near future, but if you if you go there and there's still the the latest post is still three years old, you'll have to forgive me. No worries, we'll share all of your links as well in our show notes for everybody to enjoy. Cool. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend, and thanks again for being on the show, Ross. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the show. We'll see you next week on Tuesday morning at eight o'clock for our next episode of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast for Rainforest Alberta. Cheers. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by Assembly Coworking Space. If you're looking for a co-working space, check out assemblycs.com. 
Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>